following audio is from St Nick's Durham. As a church, we exist to love God, love people and love Durham. We hope that this sermon will serve you well as a supplement to your regular Bible reading, prayer and participation in your local church. For more information about St Nick's Durham, directions or resources, please visit stnicks.org.uk. Our reading this evening is taken from Micah 1, and I will be reading from the NIV translation. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, king of Judah, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you people, all of you, listen earth and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart, like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All of this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valleys and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as the wages of prostitutes they will again be used. Because of this, I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. For Samaria's plague is incurable. It has spread to Judah. It has reached the very gates of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. Tell it not in Garth, weep not at all in Beth Oprah, roll in the dust. Pass by naked and in shame, you who live in Saphir. Those who live in Zainan will not come out. Beth Azel is in mourning, it no longer protects you. Those who live in Maroth thrive in pain, waiting for relief, because disaster has come from the Lord, even to the gate of Jerusalem. You who live in Lachish, harness fast horses to the chariot. You are where the sin of daughter Zion began, for the transgressions of Israel were found in you. Therefore, you will give passing gifts to Morsheth Garth, the town of Aksib, I will provide deceptive to the king of Israel. I will bring a conqueror against you who live in Marasheh. The nobles of Israel will flee to Adullam. Shave your head in mourning, for the children in whom you delight, make yourself as bold as a vulture, for they will go from you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good evening. Uh, let me add my welcome to that of Zoe's, and if I haven't met you, which is quite likely in these circumstances, uh, my name's Brandon, uh, and I'm on a staff team here at St. Nick's, and I'm also studying at the university. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking these words, 
for teaching your people throughout the ages just what kind of God you are like. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and one who is ever willing to forgive your children. Please send your spirit once more. Teach us from these words, by the power of your word and in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, if you didn't catch the last part of that verse, uh, let me read it for you again. Shave your head in mourning for the children in whom you delight. Make yourself as bald as the vulture, for they will go from you into exile. Imagine putting that on a Valentine's Day card. Micah, at first glance, seems like one of those street corner preachers. You know, just the, the one who's there just to ruin everyone's night. Uh, perhaps Micah appears in your mind as a guy in one of those sandwich board signs, you know, painted with the phrase, you know, the end is nigh, or even worse, turn or burn. Um, maybe Micah's words remind you of a church you left long ago. Uh, one of those holier-than-thou, could-never-live-up-to-their-standards kind of situations. How do you hear these words that we've just read? What's, what's your reaction? Well, tonight uh, we kick off a sermon series on Micah uh, that will run until Easter. Uh, and one of my hopes during this series is that you would better understand this book um, and gain some tools uh, that will help you read other parts of Scripture. My other hope, and slightly more important uh, in my mind, is that we collectively, is that collectively we would rediscover what Walter Brueggemann calls the prophetic imagination, and that we would gain a glimpse of the world that is on offer from our God, one free from violence and full of justice, that we would begin to see past our broken reality and gain a vision for how God wants to change this world and how we can join in with that work. So for the rest of our time, I want to unpack this first uh, and challenging chapter uh, and give some principles that will uh, help us work through this book in the weeks to come. Because friends, this book will change your life. Uh, I know it doesn't seem that way from the first chapter, but stay with me for the next little bit. Stick with us for the next few weeks, and I think you'll see what I mean. All right, so diving in. Uh, the book begins with a historical overture, right? The word of the Lord which came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, concerning what he saw about Samaria and Jerusalem. Right, uh, I enjoy history probably a bit more than you do, but give me like three minutes, because I think this will really help us understand the book, okay? Three minutes. Micah was a prophet. Good so far, right? Micah was a prophet uh, from the latter half of the 8th century, which is uh, the 700s for anyone who gets confused with the dates like, like I do. So 8th century BC. Um, now these uh, kings of Judah referenced here were in power from 742 BC to about 687 BC. Uh, throughout the book, Israel and Judah mentioned uh, are, are mentioned. But now remember, after the reign of Solomon, the kingdom was split into two, with Jerusalem as the capital in Judah in the south, and Samaria as the capital of Israel in the north. Now, the 8th century was a happening time, all right? Now, especially in this latter part. Uh, Assyria was the dominant superpower of the time, right? Assyria, Nineveh, this is what was happening in Jonah, right? Throughout this whole century, they are just trying to take over the world, and they get 
pretty close at some points. Uh, and it normally went like this. Assyria would come in would, would come in and dominate and destroy everything until the various kingdoms paid them to leave. And once they left, uh, or the king would die, the subjugated countries would rebel. And they didn't want to keep paying tribute, right? That makes sense. Sort of. Because Assyria would just come back in, beat them up even more, and demand more money. And the cycle would just kind of repeat that way. Now, in the 730s, the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria, which is even more north, team up and rebel. And they want Judah, the southern kingdom, to join them. But King Ahaz, mentioned here, uh, declined the offer because, well, he didn't want to get beat up. Makes sense. I wouldn't want to get beat up. So Israel and Syria promptly attack him and beat King Ahaz up, right? So what does he do? 2 Kings 16 tells us that he cried out not to the Lord, but to Assyria, right? He offered them, he offered to pay Assyria for their help, and he did so by taking money from God's temple. So Assyria came, they saw, they conquered, and then Israel had to pay them to leave again. Uh, but that arrangement didn't last long because Israel rebelled again, and in 722 BC, uh, Assyria attacked and conquered Samaria. They took their king and their people and deported them. And the book of Kings explains that the reason for Israel's destruction was that they had forsaken their gods and turned after idols. Now, Judah was spared this destruction because their treaty with Assyria, but they still had to pay, right? They didn't get beat up, but they still had to pay. Uh, and this would quickly become a burden on the people. Judah's next king, Hezekiah, had to pay Assyria from the silver found in the Lord's temple. Uh, he also rebelled against Assyria's new king, which is named Sennacherib, which is the coolest name in history. So remember that, Sennacherib. And in 701 BC, Sennacherib's army absolutely destroyed southern Palestine. Uh, they took over much of the hill country uh, of Judah. Right In Micah 1, starting at verse 10, the prophet names a series of towns which roughly corresponds to the towns destroyed by Sennacherib in that campaign. Among them, a city named Lachish is mentioned. Uh, which was the second most important city to Judah besides Jerusalem. Uh, in, in the British Museum, if uh, maybe you've seen it, uh, but they have a huge relief from the walls of the palace at Nineveh, uh, which depict the destruction of Lachish. Uh, prisoners and the spoils of war are paraded past Sennacherib. Funny enough, Sennacherib's head is actually chiseled out and defaced, probably by an enemy soldier during the fall of Nineveh when Assyria itself was invaded. So there's at least a little justice in this world. Now, this seems a bit foreign and far away from us, so let me put it in terms of the Northeast. So pretend that the center of Durham, uh, the cathedral, is Jerusalem and the temple, okay? It would be like uh, if a foreign superpower invaded and slowly took over, starting uh, in Edinburgh, which is about the same distance away Damascus would be of Syria. And then Samaria is destroyed, right? 722 BC, right? Uh, and that's just a little north of Newcastle, Morpeth area. All right, everyone is suddenly deported. The cities are on fire. You could see and smell the smoke. Um, and from there, this superpower takes out Lachish, uh, which is about the same distance as Barnard Castle. Uh, and they slowly work their way back towards Durham. Even at one point, they are just across the river. Now, all this history and geopolitics is crucial to understanding Micah. Uh, for a, a number of reasons, right? So th this prophet is likely a refugee. He is a man who has suffered the oppressions of war, of violence, of political elites playing fast and loose with the treasury, 
right? He can imagine that, uh, we can imagine that he had watched these armies desecrate and destroy his world, watching his town go up in flames as he escaped with his family and friends, remembering all the ones who didn't make it out in time. So he's standing in Jerusalem, crying out against the powers that be and declaring that all of this is their fault. One of the key things to understanding Micah's message is this, that all of what he says comes from a place of suffering, oppression, and of rage. He is in deep pain, angry at the injustice he has witnessed. He probably had been preaching the same kind of message for a long time. Uh, it is only when Judah is backed into a corner, surrounded by the empire, that they begin to take notice. When the American uh, football player Colin Kaepernick chose to kneel during the national anthem as a protest against police brutality and the fatal shootings of several black men, he was derided as disrespectful and unpatriotic, that he hated America. It was only a half a century before that when other black activists would do such similar upsetting things like sit on a bus, swim in a pool, um, have lunch at a restaurant. Even this past summer in Bristol, a Black Lives Matter activist dragged a statue of a slave trader and threw him into the harbor. But the reason why these actions were upsetting to many uh, was because they were symbolic actions that were addressing and combating white supremacy and violence. And they did so by dismantling the symbols that supported it. Micah is doing something similar. He is not writing a strongly worded letter to the king. No, Micah is writing poetry. His work is full of symbolism, double entendres, ambiguity, meant to draw his listeners in, to engage them at a certain level that pushed past what they saw on the surface. It is poetry of the oppressed, full of deep prophetic rage, and it is probably better yelled at certain parts rather than read. So if we want to understand this book, we have to appreciate its poetry. Now, similar to our poetry, a lot of these ideas come in couplets, uh, you know, two lines or, you know, a stanza of four. Now, differently, uh, Hebrew poetry rhymes the idea or the concept rather than the words. So um, look with me at verse two. So hear, you peoples, all of you, listen, earth and all who live in it that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart, like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. Now this is some powerful imagery. The Lord is a warrior whose footsteps makes puddles out of mountains. The valleys are ripped apart by his strength, just like a raging fire or flood. This is the type of God you want on your side, right? And the good news was that that God lived in the temple at Jerusalem, right? And he was coming out to deliver them, deliver Judah from their enemies, from the Assyrians, right? Well, that's what the religious and political leaders will say later in the book. Isn't the Lord among us? Like, it's right there, right? No, no disaster will overtake us. But Micah flips the script here. Yes, the Lord is coming forth from his temple, but it's to punish you. All this, he says in verse 5, is because of Jacob's rebellion. 
but we learn that it's not really because Israel rebelled against their Assyrian overlords, but because they have rebelled against the Lord. They had turned away from worshiping the Lord. And more than simply worshiping idols, we'll see in the following weeks that Israel and Judah's failure to worship the Lord looked particularly like cheating the poor or stripping them of their land, taking bribes and using violence to advance their political agenda. Micah imaginatively points his audience to the smoldering ruins of Samaria and all the other destroyed cities and says that this too will happen to Jerusalem. And that all of this is happening because you do not love the Lord and you do not care for your neighbor. Micah tells his audience to shave their heads, be prepared to weep and mourn and lament because your children will grow up in exile as a result of the choices you have made. Micah's theological vision can sound startling. Uh, I mean, he might as well have said, you know, roses are red, violets are blue, care for the poor, or else God will destroy you. Uh, no, I had to. It's Valentine's Day. Come on, I had to. Do. Okay. But if applied to our context, especially during this pandemic, we might arrive at a very tricky question, right? Does this mean that God is behind the pandemic? Was there some particular sin we committed to bring this plague upon ourselves? And I'm sure we can come up with many, many things we think are worthwhile for God to punish. And Christians have been spectacularly awful in this area, often pushing the blame onto the victim rather than the perpetrator, uh, more often pointing fingers at every other person except themselves. But Micah doesn't do that. The condemnation here is directed at Israel's leaders, not his fellow refugees, right? They aren't poor and oppressed because they did something wrong or that God was punishing them for some sin. No, Micah points to Israel's leaders, their kings, the royal court, the priests, the elite, and he proclaims that the poverty and suffering is their fault. God was coming for them. And Micah's language is shocking on purpose. As Walter Brueggemann has written, the prophetic imagination is meant to cut through our numbness and penetrate our self-deception. Micah is trying to wake up his listeners to the realities of suffering, and he does so through this poetic language. As for reading uh, this book during a pandemic, um, I don't think we should expect the particularities of Micah to answer or address all of our own particular questions or concerns, right? We, we won't find in these pages any direct talk about a pandemic or parliament or any number of very important things, and that's okay. We have more than just the book of Micah. But still, the Lord is speaking. He is both challenging and encouraging us. But are we willing to listen and to open ourselves to Micah's criticism? There are many things that I believe God is teaching us uh, in this moment. And honestly, we'd be here all week if we wanted to address uh, all of these important issues. Um, as it is Racial Justice Sunday, uh, it seems that this is a good place to start. Uh, this past year has been an apocalyptic one, right? I think many people are beginning to understand just how much racial inequality exists in this world how systemic racism and injustice have denied uh, people of color homes, jobs, education, and opportunities. May maybe you've read some books on the issues or attended a conference or a protest. I think, I think that's awesome. 
And now, obviously, people of color have always known about this racism. As Aaron mentioned this morning, it's happened again and again and again, and they've been telling us about it, probably just like Micah did. But as a church, we have so much farther to go. Last week, our brother uh, Jarrell Robinson Brown, a, a black minister who recently was hired to a church in London, tweeted something. It was a pretty innocuous tweet, uh, perhaps po poorly timed, but the backlash he received was also apocalyptic. People began responding to him with homophobic and racial slurs. He began trending on Twitters within hours with political pundits calling for his resignation, for the Church of England to fire him and even defrock him. Even after he deleted his post and offered an apology, right, the hate kept coming and the diocese issued a statement that did nothing to support Jarrell. Even after people pointed out that that statement caused only more racial trauma and harm, right, the second statement that followed was only marginally better. In a matter of hours and days, our church undid years of reconciliation. As we work through the book of Micah, we need to understand that most of us are not the prophet. We aren't Micah. We are not innocent in these matters. But knowing many of you at our church, we, we aren't the villains Micah is railing against either. But we are somewhere in the middle. And we have to decide in this moment, who are we going to support? Will we stay comfortable or open ourselves up to the word God is speaking? Will we choose idolatry and side with those in power, those who are profiting for the exploitation and oppression of the poor and the vulnerable? Or will we join in with the prophet and worship the Lord? Will we do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God? Friends, we are almost done. Oh, one last point uh, to kind of bring this all together. Micah's name means something like, who is like the Lord? It's a question that underpins much of the book. What is God like? And how should that knowledge change us? At the very end of the book, Micah writes, Who is a God like you? who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on an, an, an oath to our, to our ancestors in days long ago. Micah's message comes from a place of suffering and rage, but it is supported and held by his hope and trust in God. Micah saw that God was disciplining his people, but even the exile was not complete abandonment. God would return once again to his people, he would save them, he would bind up their wounds, and he would forgive their sins. At the end of the age, he will bring lasting justice and peace, where people beat their weapons into gardening tools, where there will be no war and each person will live securely on their own land. This is the prophetic vision uh, that sustains Micah. As Christians, we believe that in Jesus Christ, God has made good on his promises to us. We believe and confess that Jesus is God with us. 
a God who comforts us in our afflictions and upholds us in our trials. He is a God who speaks a word of blessing over us. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. There is hope beyond our frail attempts uh, to control and manage life in this world. There is hope beyond this pandemic, beyond racial injustice, beyond everything that causes us to doubt God's love for us. And that prophetic hope in God's promise to us in Christ that he loves us, he is with us, and he is for us. Thank you for listening to the St. Nick's Durham podcast. If you would like to hear more sermons and teaching like this, then subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about St. Nick's, visit our website at stnicks.org.uk.